Welcome to Phil Interrupted. Are you out of your damn mind? You get to drink from the fire hole. This is an embarrassment of this face. What? What's the matter, shit? You got wax in your ears. Hello and welcome to Phil Interrupted. This is the show where I get to do whatever I want without having to deal with the constant antics of Derek Batichek. I am your host, Phil Allen, and I do welcome you to the show. Today's topic for the show is going to be famous hoaxes. From the obscure to the very, very well-known hoaxes, we will be covering quite a few of them. So guys, sit back in your recliner, put it in that upright lock position. Wait, that's an airplane. You know what I mean. Let's jump right into it, get comfortable, and let's have some fun here today on Phil Interrupted. Numero uno, alien autopsy. Autopsy? I can never say that word right. It's very difficult. Right off the bat, I can't, can't speak. The alien autopsy video, it was a hoaxed medical examination and dissection of a dummy depicted in a 17-minute black-and-white film released in 1995 by London-based entrepreneur Ray Santilli. He presented it as an authentic autopsy on the body of an extraterrestrial being recovered from the 1947 crash of the Flying Disc near Roswell, New Mexico. The film footage was allegedly supplied to him by a retired military cameraman who wished to remain anonymous. Ah, convenient. In 2006, Santilli admitted that the film was not authentic, but was rather a staged reconstruction of footage he claimed to have viewed in 1992, which it had deteriorated and become unusable by the time that he actually made this film. He claimed that a few frames of the original were embedded in this film, but he never specified which ones. In 1995, before being exposed as a hoax, the film was sold to television networks and broadcast in more than 33 countries. I distinctly remember this one. I remember seeing it. It's really creepy. You can look it up on YouTube and see it. I know that even things like the clock and stuff like that was like 1940s, 1950s, um, clocks that they actually used and the things that they wore and stuff like that like everything uh like down to the t was tried to be um recreated perfectly from that that historical time uh, era and to be accurate so it was pretty well done hoax um it's i don't know it was creepy i remember seeing it and just being like what is this is this real not real it's got to be fake because people aren't going crazy so yeah you can check that out on youtube john humble for five years, women in the north of England lived under a cloud of fear. The murderer who had become known as the Yorkshire Ripper was on a killing spree. Thirteen victims, mostly street workers, were brutally butchered to death on the streets from 1975 to 1980. In March 1978, three years after the investigation started, West Yorkshire police received a letter. The sender claimed to be the Yorkshire Ripper and warned police about future attacks. The postmark showed that the letter was sent from Sunderland, so police moved their investigation away from Yorkshire and focused their efforts in northeast England. A year later, the prankster sent two more letters and an audio tape in which he spoke in a strong Wearside accent. Wearside? I don't know what that sounds like. What is why oh, bloody hell? Probably like something like that. I don't know. 
The tape sent the police down a blind alley. Believing their suspect was from Wearside, they launched a one million pound, was like, that's not dollars, it's pounds hey, over there, publicity campaign looking for the killer, who they dubbed Wearside Jack. Wearside Jack's identity remained unknown for 25 years, but in 2005, police revisited the case. Using advanced DNA technology, scientists forensically tested the envelopes that were sent to detectives in 1978 and 1979. They successfully matched the DNA to a man named John Humble, a man who had been arrested in 2000 for minor offenses. In 2006, Humble, then 50 years old, pleaded guilty to perverting the course of justice and was jailed for eight years for his sick prank. In 1981, Peter Sutcliffe was finally charged for the horrific acts. So they ended up getting the real guy. But this douchebag, John Humble, sent in stuff to throw off the police. And uh, I guess I guess that's a hoax. Yeah, I guess it could be. Either way, he's a douchebag of the century for uh, that. Two girls, one cup. Ah, yes, I'm sure you remember this infamous video. Two Girls, One Cup is the unofficial nickname of a trailer for Hungry Bitches, a 2007 Brazilian scat fetish pornographic film produced by MFX Media. The trailer features two women conducting themselves in fetishistic intimate relations, including defecating into a cup, taking turns in what appears to be consuming the excrement and vomiting into each other's mouths. The video went viral and became one of the best-known shock videos in itself and for the reactions its graphic content elicited from viewers who had not seen such content before. Around mid-October 2007, video-sharing sites, including YouTube, were flooded with videos depicting other people's reactions to watching Two Girls, One Cup for the first time. Now I'll be uh, dead honest with you, I don't actually know if this is a hoax or not. I tried desperately researching on the internet to find out if this was real or not, and I couldn't really find anything. It, so I think it leads me to believe that this is mo most likely real. I mean, people are like, oh no, it's ice cream, bro. It's definitely not real. That's ice cream. They're using peanut oil. That's how they were able to, she was able to poop it out so fast because her bowels were cleaned out. So I've read all sorts of conflicting things about it, but, uh, I know, I just, I wanted to include it because it was so disgusting, and I know you've seen it, and I felt like having you remember how grossed out you were, so I included it, it's probably not a hoax, it's probably stinky real doo-doo um, poop shit on her face, and on their faces, and on their bodies, and uh, that's super disgusting, but um, maybe it's a hoax, I don't know, you be the judge, two girls, one cup, go watch it, have fun. Gundala Gundala the movie was a hoax perpetrated by Isklandar Salim, a photographer and graphic designer who created the promotional material for a movie that was not being made about Gundala, a lightning-powered superhero. Salim noticed that there had never been a movie featuring an Indonesian superhero, and he wished to start a public debate on the subject. He created an official website, a Facebook page, posters, and staged photographs that allegedly showed the movie being made. As a result of the attention created by the hoax, Gundala's creator, Haria Hasimi, 
became involved in negotiations to produce a real film based on the character. Ah, best of my knowledge, Gundala has never had a film still made. But you can look this up, and there's a pretty um, convincing poster that's online that looks like this is a superhero of some sort. He's shooting lightning out of his butt. I don't know what he's doing, but he is some sort of a superhero, and it looks pretty convincing. Like I said, it's fake. It's, it's not real. It's not a real movie. Apollo 20. In April 2007, videos began appearing on YouTube under the username RetireDAFB, telling the extraordinary story of Apollo 20, a secret lunar mission that definitively proved the existence of intelligent alien life on the moon. On May 23, 2007, Italian ufologist Luca Sambrocco interviewed a man who identified himself to be William Rutledge, a retired American astronaut living in Rwanda. Rutledge claimed to be the commander of the Apollo 20 crew and to be the account owner of Retire DAFB on YouTube. However, Scandra never met Rudledge in person because he conducted the interview over Yahoo Messenger. During the interview, Rutledge said that the Apollo 20 mission was top secret. It was launched in mid-August 1976 from the Vanderburg Air Force Base in Santa Barbara, California, and was conducted jointly by the United States and the former Soviet Union. He said the other mission members were American Leona Snyder, this is apparently a fictitious person, and former Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, the first human being to walk in space. Rutledge said that the videos show that he and Leonov discovered the remains of an ancient lunar civilization. He also said that they brought back artifacts to Earth for studying, including a hibernating female humanoid. In truth, Apollo 20 was a mission that never got off the ground. It was one of three lunar missions that NASA canceled due to, I don't know why I got that accent, NASA canceled due to lack of funding along with Apollo missions 18 and 19. The last NASA lunar mission was Apollo 17, launched in 1972. Balloon Boy The Balloon Boy hoax occurred on October 15, 2009 in Fort Collins, Colorado, when Richard and Mahumi Hene allowed a gas balloon filled with helium to float away into the atmosphere. They then claimed that their six-year-old son, Falcon, was inside of it. At the time, it was reported by the mass media that the boy was apparently traveling at altitudes reaching... 7,000 feet above local terrain in a homemade balloon colored and shaped to resemble a silver flying saucer type of UFO. The event attracted worldwide attention. Falcon was nicknamed Balloon Boy by some in the media. After more than an hour-long flight that covered more than 50 miles across three counties, the balloon landed about 12 miles northeast of the Denver International Airport. Authorities sent several National Guard helicopters and local police in pursuit. 
After the balloon landed and the boy was found not to be inside, authorities began a manhunt of the entire area, raising fears that he had fallen from the balloon. It was reported that an object had detached from the balloon and fallen to the ground. Later that afternoon, the boy was reported to have been hiding in his home attic the entire time. Suspicion soon arose that the incident was a hoax and publicity stunt engineered by the Hennies, particularly following their interview with Wolf Blitzer on Larry King Live that evening. In response to a question about why he was hiding, Falcon said to his father, You guys said, um, we did this for the show. Thank you, that was my child impression. On October 18th, the sheriff announced his conclusion that the incident was a hoax and that the parents would likely face several felony charges. Richard Henney pleaded guilty on November 13th, 2009 to the charge of attempting to influence a public servant. On December 23rd, 2009, Richard Henney received an additional sentence of 90 days in jail, and his wife, Mayumi, whatever, Henne, was sentenced to 20 days of weekend jail. Weekend jail. Tw- 20 days, weekend jail. What the hell's weekend jail? You're allowed to go in and out of jail? I thought when you got those, you were thrown behind those cold, hard steel bars. There was no getting in and out. She can just go in on the week. Yeah, I'll go. Yes. What are you doing this weekend? I got jail. Jail time this weekend. Yup. Yeah, going in. I didn't even know such a thing existed. I guess they were a little more lenient on the on Mama Dukes there. The Hennes were also ordered to pay thirty six thousand dollars in restitution. I guess that's for uh, the helicopters and the police and the manpower that uh, they wasted by uh, doing this hoax. The story gained great popularity on the internet and Twitter and was later adapted into a musical comedy called Balloon Boy the Musical. Now these Henny people are ridiculous. You can still find stuff they're doing online and we're going to get to that in just a second. You won't be disappointed. These people obviously want to be famous. Uh, They have also invented the Bear Scratch. The back scratcher attaches to a wall, allowing a person to scratch his back like a bear. You can own it for only $19.99. What about this product? Your Shake Down. The device shakes the lingering remains of items from jars, such as ketchup and mayonnaise, and sells for six easy payments of $29.99. You may find yourself needing this item. The Henny Duty Truck Transformers. That's right. The truck robot loading device picks up heavy items and places them in the bed of your truck. The price is not listed, but in 2011, Autoblog.com said that it costs almost $14,000. The website is currently offline. So it's pretty obvious these Henny people, Henny, Henny, however you want to say it, are constantly looking for fame, looking for the easy buck. They're always coming up with inventions or pretending to throw their kids into balloons for uh, public exposure. So, uh, yeah, seems like they're pretty much willing to do anything. So much willing to do anything that they have three boys, okay, in the family. And these parents have put these kids in cahoots to make a super ridiculous death metal band. They claim to be the youngest death metal band in the world. So once again, the Henne family is desperately trying to become famous. And they released an album, these three kids. It's it's atrocious. It sucks. I listened to a little bit of it just to... Uh, 
so that I could, you know, thoroughly tell you guys uh, about this. And I checked it out. It was dreadful. But they did a song called Balloon Boy, uh, something or other about that. And uh, I'm actually going to play it for you right now so that you can get a... a little bit of background and, and hear how horrendous this song is. So here you go. Have, have a little listen here of the Henny Boys. Ever had one of those days? Everything went wrong. The shift hits the fan. And who the hell is Wolf? Dreadful performance perpetrated primarily by putrid punks of the Henne family. Awful, awful stuff. <laughs> you know, going back to the, the actual Balloon Boy hoax, I remember when this happened. I actually happened to be watching TV when they showed it up in the sky. And it definitely looked like a like a flying saucer or UFO, their balloon. So that's another thing that they're kind of, I guess, sort of playing on. But I remember when it happened. And all that went down, so, you know, this is one of those hoaxes that I lived it, brah. I lived it. Madoff Investment Securities. In December in 2008, Bernie Madoff founded the Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC, in 1960. It became a prestigious firm on Wall Street, acting both as a market maker and as an investment fund that managed money for high net worth individuals and institutions. Year after year, Madoff delivered reliable annual returns of about 10% for his investors. He managed to do this even in down markets when everybody else was losing money. These returns inevitably created suspicion, but billions of dollars continued to be entrusted to him, principally because he always paid out if anybody ever requested their money. It's estimated that Bernie Madoff stole $65 billion. $65 billion pizones. That is a ton of money. Wow. Now, I think we all know about Bernie Madoff. If you know anything about famous Ponzi schemes or Wall Street crooks, Bernie Madoff is top of the ladder, top of the table, top of the cage, top of the house, top of the heap. He is number one. And I think you guys know him, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on him, but it would be, uh, I would be, uh, hard pressed not to mention, uh, Mr. Madoff. <laughs> From one well known guy to a guy you probably never heard of, Benjamin Wilko Mursky. 
Benjamin Wilco Mursky was a name which Bruno Dusketter, just stupid, hard to read name, adopted in his constructed identity as a Holocaust survivor and published author. His fictional 1995 memoir, published in English, was titled Fragments, Memories of a Wartime Childhood. He was debunked by a Swiss journalist in August 1998. The subsequent disclosure of Wilk O. Mirsky's fabrications sparked heated debate in the German and English-speaking world. Many critics argued that the title Fragments, the book, no longer had any literary value. So what this guy did is, it's actually kind of a sad case from what I, I've seen. This guy was kind of a strange individual, suffered possibly from mental issues, and he was a very good author, though. And he wrote this incredible story about how he's Jewish and he survived the Holocaust and these camps as a like a very young kid. I forget, like four years old or something. And it was this harrowing tale of growing up uh, through that whole era of the Nazis and fascism and all that. And everybody was like, this is an incredible piece of literary, literary, literary work. He won awards. He was, you know, featured on talk shows and journals. And then, you know, as I said here before, it came out that it was a hoax. And apparently what he was doing is he was taking real stories from his childhood and adapting them to then fit like a German occupied Europe story with, you know, the concentration camps. So elements of it, people in his life were able to confirm. Yeah, that's that's true. What happened but, you know, he was nowhere, he wasn't in a concentration camp, and so things didn't match up, and, you know, it came out that it was all hoax, and people were up in arms, like, how dare you take the Holocaust and make, trick us about it, you know, how dare you, that's a real low scumbag move, but some people say that he didn't, he wasn't even, he had so many mental issues that he might not have even been really aware of what he was doing, uh, so who knows? I, I kind of think he probably did, but you know, anyway, so kind of a, a messed up thing to do there regardless. So yeah, the Holocaust story, not real. I mean, the Holocaust was, but this guy's story was not real. I'm using a lot of crazy voices today. It's kind of fun. Let's stick on the note here of Nazis, the Hitler diaries. The Hitler Diaries were a series of 60 volumes of journals written by Adolf Hitler. The diaries were purchased in 1983 for 9.3 million Deutsche Marks, which means 3.7 million dollars, American dollars, pizones, by the West German news magazine Stern. So they're the ones that bought it. And then they uh, sold the rights to several news organizations. One of the publications involved was the Sunday Times. And they asked their independent director to authenticate the diaries. And he did so, and he said that they were genuine. Then, at a press conference to announce the forthcoming publication, the historian that they had hired announced that on reflection that he had changed his mind and other historians also raised questions concerning their validity after rigorous forensic analysis which had not been performed previously they bought this thing for 3.7 million dollars without checking it out quickly confirmed that the diaries were fakes 
The diaries were forged by a man named Conrad Kajua between 1981 and 1983. Microsoft acquires the Catholic Church. In late 1994, a news story issued by the Associated Press began circulating online, primarily via email, claiming that Microsoft had bought the Catholic Church. The story, which bore a Vatican City dateline, noted that this was the first time a computer software company has acquired a major world religion. The article then quoted Microsoft chairman Bill Gates as saying that he considered religion to be a growth market and that the combined resources of Microsoft and the Catholic Church will allow us to make religion easier and more fun for a broader range of people. Under the terms of the deal, Microsoft would acquire exclusive electronic rights to the Bible and would make the sacraments available online. Well, the news article ended up uh, being a fake. The fake news article first appeared in early December 1994, and it spread rapidly. Most people recognized it as a joke, but some people thought Microsoft itself was the source of the joke, and they phoned or emailed the company to express their anger and outrage. Microsoft also received calls from people who believed the story was true and wanted more details. As Microsoft continued to receive the calls, the company eventually felt compelled to issue a formal denial, which it did on December 16, 1994. It also apologized to anyone who was offended by the story and thought that the company was responsible for it. Microsoft spokeswoman Christine Santucchi noted, We have no idea where it came from and we have no way to trace it. We thought it would go away on its own. It shows that the world is becoming a very, very small place. Electronic communications have a lot of power. The 2008 Georgia Bigfoot On August 12, 2008, Matthew Witten and Dyer released a press release and went on the Steve Coles radio show called Squatch Detective to announce that they had a dead Bigfoot body in their possession. That's a huge discovery, right? After initially leaking grainy footage that showed Bigfoot, they presented the carcass encased in a block of ice at a conference that was open only to the press. The two announced that they had found their 7-foot, 7-inch, 500-pound creature while hiking in the North Georgia mountains in June. They were out squatching. They also stated that they had spotted about three other similar creatures after making their discovery. According to Dyer, it took them a day and a half with six men to carry out the Bigfoot, all while being followed by the other Bigfoot creatures. Tom Biscardi, who is a pretty famous Bigfoot uh, hunter, searcher, I guess you could call him that, he's well known kind of for being like an idiot, but kind of well known in the Bigfoot scene which uh, I love Bigfoot shows, Bigfoot podcasts. They're just fun, you know? I don't know if I believe in it, but I I like hearing about it. It's fun. Anyway, Tom Biscardi joined Witten and Dyer for the news conference, stating, Last weekend I touched it. I measured its feet. I felt its intestines. That's really why, that's gross to say I I felt its intestines. And he lauded its authenticity. However, as the body thawed, the claim to have found a Bigfoot began to unravel as a giant hoax. 
and owner of an internet Halloween custom retailer store, thehorrordome.com, said that the costume definitely looks like a costume in our store after viewing photos of Dyer's Bigfoot. Upon further investigation, it was confirmed that the corpse was in fact a costume stuffed with possum roadkill, entrails, and slaughterhouse leftovers. The entire affair lasted only a few short days, and upon being exposed, Dyer said that an unnamed government agency had confiscated the real Bigfoot body, and believing that he needed to produce something, he fabricated the hoax. Bullshit, liar, pants on fire. This guy, Dyer, has been caught numerous times in the Bigfoot community lying and having fake evidence, um that he tries to sell to unwitting people and he tries to suck you in. So he's nothing but a full-time con artist, uh, specifically within the Bigfoot community. He's a joke, and a lot of people who are into Bigfoot, when they first first heard the story breaking and they heard that Dyer's name was attached to it, they were like, no, people, stop. Like, I remember seeing the news conference with the, the with them on CNN. Like, this was like big news at the time. And people in the community are like, no, it's dire. Like, please, everybody stop. Don't believe it. But by then, the story had just blown out of proportion that, oh, my God, we've got a Bigfoot in a freezer. Like, we've actually got one. We can't believe it. So, yeah, I actually saw um, saw this on TV after the fact. So this is I got a little story, actually, about this Bigfoot hoax. I was going out hiking at the time with a few friends, and we went out to an area in Pennsylvania. It's a great hike, and we're out there, and we were probably hiking for about an hour, and all of a sudden, like, my best friend, he goes, oh, hey, did you guys hear that they discovered Bigfoot? Just, like, nonchalantly, and I was like, what? And the other guy who we were with, he was like, yeah, he's like, it was on TV, like, earlier today or yesterday, I forget the specifics of it, and I was like... You're kidding me. And they're like, no, it was on like CNN and like other like major news networks. Like they actually found a body like Bigfoot exists. So, you know, my friends bought it hook, line and sinker because it was on CNN. You expect something like that is going to be real. And me, I'm now like, holy shit. Like my world just kind of um, like changed. I got a little unraveled there. Wait a minute. You were telling me Bigfoot is real and I'm an hour out into the hike in the middle of nowhere in the woods Suddenly, I'm worried that Bigfoot could be around the next tree because now I think it's real. I'm blown away. I can't believe it. I'm like, no, you guys are pulling my leg. You guys are totally pranking me. They're like dead serious. And we didn't get any cell phone service there. But they're like, when we get back to the parking lot and stuff, we'll look it up. We will show you that it's real. And like this news conference happened and Bigfoot has been discovered. So I'm floored. This has gone on for hours now. We went hiking for another like two, three hours, something like that. I am floored. This whole day, we get back, and I look, and it comes out, like, I don't even know if it was that same day or the day after. I'd be lying if I told you. I actually don't remember. But I, you know, soon found out that it was a hoax, and it was this guy, Berscardi, and Dry and Dyer, and all these douchebags. And uh, I was like, oh, all right, you know, another Bigfoot hoax. You know, so what? Who cares? Whatever. There's Bigfoot hoaxes all the time. But to me, for that brief few hours while I was in the woods, I was unnerved, I was rattled, and for those few hours, my friends made me believe that Bigfoot existed.
document 12571-3570. This document is a hoax document originally posted to the Usenet news group alt.sex <laughs> on November 28th, 1989. Whew, whew, early days in the internet. According to this document, astronauts aboard space shuttle mission STS-75 performed a variety of sex acts to determine which positions are most effective in zero gravity. I've often wondered that myself. I really have. Can you have sex in space like that? Like, how does that work? You gotta be, like, strapped into something to make it work? Or, how, you know... If we're going to be going into space and we're going to be traveling to other planets, we need to know how to do the dirty business up in space. And we need to know how it works. I've often wondered this myself. So let's continue here and learn more. The document goes on to report that of the 10 positions tested, oh, six required the use of a belt in the inflatable tunnel. Wait, I get the belt part. What's an inflatable tunnel? What, what, what does that mean? Anyway, while four were contingent on being hanged <laughs> whoa see you gotta hang on to something oh, this is, i wonder what this positions could be the document also discussed a video record of the 10 one hour sessions oh on the lower deck of the shuttle and notes that the subjects added for their own personal footnotes to help scientists the real sts 75 mission occurred in 1996 seven years after the text was published and consisted of an all-male crew clearly indicating that the document was a hoax. Nonetheless, many people have been fooled by this document and NASA, NASA has had to debunk it on several occasions. In March 2000, NASA's Director of Media Services, Brian Welch, referred to the document as a fairly well-known urban legend. Our first time. Our first time was one of the most widely popularized internet hoaxes of its era. 18-year-olds Mike and Diane made a public announcement declaring their intention to lose their virginity. The event would be broadcast live on ourfirsttime.com, so visitors could share in the experience. Our first time, which promoted itself as a free public service educational website, followed Mike and Diane day by day from July 18th to July 21st, 1998. It followed them through HIV tests, condom selections, and telling their parents about their important decision. So many millions of people attempted to view the site that the server crashed. The Internet Entertainment Group agreed to host it in exchange for links to their pornographic content. Over time, some began to suspect it as a hoax. Mike and Diane looked older than 18 years old and appeared to be actors. Mike turned out to be an Alabama actor named Ty Tyler, and Diane turned out to be Michelle Parma, a former Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. The enterprise fizzled when IEG backed out after the producer, Ken Tippin, revealed that his plan was to make money by charging internet users $5 each for an age verification plan, but they planned for the couple to decide to abstain on the day set for the deflowering. What jerks? They're going to steal your money and then not, not, not give you the goods? Uh, so Tipton ends up saying, It was basically an 18-day public service announcement. 
it was supposed to be the largest webcast ever to have a safe sex message. People say, you fooled us. Well, you're damn right we fooled you. If people were logging in to see two kids screw, well, shame on them. If they go through the whole story and they learn something about AIDS and safe sex, then what is the harm? It was a public safety PSA. Well, you know, I can kind of get down with that idea that it's a PSA. However, the fact that you're going to charge people for the age verification so that they can watch, that kind of sounds to me like stealing. That kind of sounds to me like fraud. So I'm not really sure that this was uh, just a public service announcement. It sounds like this guy was ready to rob people blind, and it went way bigger than he thought. And now he had to spin and go backwards and say, no, 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 no. It was This was just a safe sex thing. So to keep himself from getting in big trouble is my guess. But yeah, our first time. Oh, the early days of the internet. Ah, truly was the wild, wild west back then. Ah, yes, all sorts of websites came up. Bananadine. Bananadine is a fictional psychoactive substance which is supposedly extracted from banana peels. A hoax recipe for its extraction from the banana peel was originally published in the Berkeley Barb magazine in March 1967. It continued to go on, and recipes were in the anarchist's cookbook. Uh, you know what? I may or may not have smoked banana peels when I was in high school. I'll leave that up for you to debate. Let's move on to our next one. Plainfield Teachers College. Plainfield Teachers College was an imaginary college created as a hoax that fooled the New York Times sports department and college football fans across the country. In 1941, stockbroker Morris Neuberger and radio sales executive Alexander Bink Dauntbaum concocted the idea of a mythical college football team. Using the name Jerry Cronden, Nuremberger phoned the New York papers and this other guy phoned the Philadelphia papers, blah, 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 whatever, with fantastic stories of Plainfield Teachers College lopsided victories over several other non-existent schools. For the first two weeks, the scores and the opponents in the New York and Philadelphia papers uh, were not covered. However, by the third week of reporting by these these uh, these fakers here, the third week of reporting, uh, they became to become better organized in their presentation, and the newspapers started printing the scores week after week after week. These men continued to invent other details, including uh, a sophomore running back named Johnny the Celestial Comet Chung, whose amazing ability on the gridiron was chalked up to the rice that he ate on the bench between quarters. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Hopalong Hopalitz was named as Plainfield's coach. So these guys are having some fun and shenanigans at the expense of these uh, sports reporters from the New York and Philadelphia area. After six weeks of Plainfield Teachers College victories, Red Smith from the Philadelphia Record decided to actually go to Plainfield, New Jersey and try to find the college. Of course, there was not one. Finally, the two men... Newberger and Donabon had to confess, and the Jerry Croden character they made up 
uh, wrote his final press release stating that the Plainfield Teachers College had canceled its remaining schedule as Chung and several other players were declared ineligible after flunking exams. Catch Me Killer In February 2009, a YouTuber began bragging about killing 16 women and hiding their bodies. Under the name Catch Me Killer, the person digitally blurred his face and spoke in a deep altered voice. In the videos, he described details of the murders and challenged investigators to find the women before he revealed his identity. It shows a guy pretty clearly is a white dude. You can see the skin of his, you know, you see his skin, the color. So, you know, he's already giving away that he's a white guy if he is indeed a murderer. And then he has like a, it's like voices like altered in parts. And then he's got this like black, like, I don't know, like blur, black blur thing over just his face. And you can like sort of see his hair around the edges and parts. It is done piss ass poorly. If you were really a murderer, you were giving way too much away about yourself online. Police would be like, oh, shoot. All right, let's nail this guy. We've, he's already letting us see a bunch of stuff about him. Anyway, so, yeah, you know, I get mad at people when they don't cover their tracks. Why am I getting mad at this guy? Anyway, police in Georgia believe that one of the women described was former pageant queen Tara Grinstead, who went missing in October 2005. This is explored in detail in a podcast called Up and Vanished. I'm currently listening to this. It's actually pretty good, guys. Check it out. The YouTuber also posted a link in the videos to a website dedicated to a missing Florida woman, Jennifer Kissy, who had last been seen in 2006. This is also a true story. Tara and this woman, Jennifer, were both murdered or have vanished. Along with the video, the poster uploaded a taunting message saying, Maybe I can help. What a jerk. Police tracked down the man in the video and arrested him after tracking his computer IP addresses. He denied any of the killings. His name was Andrew Scott Haley. He said the videos were a fictional game, which police said he did to attract online hits. Haley was charged with making false statements in a police investigation. Dick. Rosie Ruiz. On April 21, 1980, Ruiz appeared to win the Boston Marathon's female category with an amazing time of 2 hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds. Her time would have been the fastest female time in Boston Marathon history as well as the third fastest female time ever recorded in any marathon. However, suspicions mounted about Ruiz almost from the beginning. The men's winner, who had just won his third straight Boston Marathon, noticed that Ruiz could not recall many things that most runners know by heart, such as intervals and splints. Other observers noticed that Ruiz was not panting or coated in sweat, and her thighs were much flabbier and fattier than would be expected for a world-class runner. She later released stress test results showing that her resting heart rate was 76. Most female marathoners have a resting heart rate in the 50s or lower. In addition to her ridiculous time, uh, it was an unusual improvement more than 25 minutes ahead of her reported time in the New York City Marathon, which she did just six months earlier. When asked by a reporter why she did not seem fatigued after the grueling race, she said, I got up with a lot of energy this morning. 
Some female competitors thought that was odd, and when asked uh, what she had noticed about the suburb of Wesley while running through it, she did not mention the students of Wesley College, who traditionally cheer loudly for the first female runners as they pass the campus. Most seriously, though, is no other runners could recall seeing her. The eventual uh, winner, a Canadian, was told that she was leading the race at the 18-mile mark, while another racer was told she was in second place at the 17-mile mark. Ruiz could not have passed either of them without being seen. Several spotters at checkpoints throughout the course also did not remember seeing her in the first group of females. In addition, she did not appear in any pictures or video footage. Two Harvard students recalled seeing Ruiz burst out of the crowd of spectators on Commonwealth Avenue about a half mile from the finish line. Well, the New York City Marathon officials launched their own investigation and could not find any sign of Ruiz near the finish line in their race and subsequently disqualified her from the New York Marathon. About a week later after that, the Boston Marathon also disqualified Ruiz. So basically, it came out that she was a total fraud. She cut in line, totally faked it. She's not the real winner. The Blue Waffle. The Blue Waffle is a fictitious sexually transmitted disease said to affect only women, causing severe infection and blue discoloration to the vagina. The disease has been confirmed as false. According to Dr. Elizabeth Boskley, the fictitious disease may have started around March 2010 after an image uh, of a stained vaginal yeast infection was circulating by the shock website documenting reality. In Trenton, New Jersey, a councilwoman, Kathy McBride, fell victim to the hoax during a 2013 city council meeting, believing the disease was in fact real. Uh, I looked this up. Yeah, it's just, um, you know, genitalia that's colored, you know, blue. The blue waffle. And uh, it's funny that this woman in New Jersey uh, was tricked because I drive through Trenton every day to get to where I need to work. So this story hits really close to home. The blue waffle (laughs) really hits home. Monty Teo. Notre Dame's Monty Teo played football under a terrible burden. In the span of six hours in September, as Sports Illustrated told it, Teo learned first of the death of his grandmother, and then of the death of his girlfriend, Lene Kekua. Many sports media outlets reported on these tragedies during Teo's strong 2012 season and his emergence as a Heisman Trophy candidate. If you're not familiar with it, the Heisman Trophy goes out to uh, the year's best college football player. Kikua, whatever you say her name was, was 22 years old and had been in a serious car accident in California and then had been diagnosed with leukemia. Sports Illustrated described how Teo would phone her in her hospital room and stay online with her as he slept through the night. Her relatives told him that at her lowest moments, as she fought to emerge from a coma, her breathing rate would increase at the sound of his voice. Upon receiving the news of the two deaths, Teo went out and led the Fighting Irish to a 20-3 upset of Michigan State, racking in 12 tackles himself. It was a heartbreaking and inspirational performance. Teo would appear on ESPN's College Game Day to talk about the letters Kakia had written him during her illness. The South Bend Tribune wrote an article describing the young couple's fairy tale meeting. She, a Stanford student, he, a Notre Dame star. 
after a football game in Palo Alto one day they met. Monte Teo really did lose his grandmother that fall. She died on September 11, 2012 at the age of 72, according to Social Security Administration records. But there is no Social Security Administration records for the death of Lene Maria Kikia, whatever her name is, that day or any other. Her passing, recounted so many times in the national media, still produces no obituary or funeral announcement and no mention in the Stanford student newspaper. Nor is there any report of a severe auto accident involving her. Background checks turned up nothing. The Stanford's registrar's office has no record of Lene Kakia ever enrolled. There is no record of her birth in the news. Outside of a few Twitter and Instagram accounts, there's no online evidence that Lene Kakia ever existed. The photographs identified as Kakia online and in TV news reports are pictures from the social media accounts of a 22-year-old California woman who is not named Lene Kakia. She is not a Stanford graduate, she has never been in a severe car accident, and she does not have leukemia, and she has never, ever met Monty Teo. After receiving an anonymous email tip in January of 2013, reporters Timothy Burke and Jack Dickley (laughs) of the sports blog Deadspin conducted an investigation into Kakia's identity. On January 16th, they published an article alleging that Kakia had not existed and pointed to a man named Rana Ahiyash Tika Sopa Sopa Sopa. Uh, He was involved in the hoax uh, relationship with Teo. This man has been described as a family friend and acquaintance of Teo. He subsequently confessed to the hoax and admitted to falling in love with Monty Teo and using the Kakea identity as an escape. Now this one, I'm a sports guy, and I totally am 110% familiar with this story. I remember hearing about it. It was on all ESPN News, ESPN Radio, Sports Center. Every article you checked on anywhere, this was one of the top stories. And it came out in like strange fashion because everyone's like, oh my God, it's an inspirational story. One of the best players in college football has had so much tragedy in his life, yet he continues to go out there and be one of the best players in the country. Unbelievable, amazing. And you know how sports can get sometimes. You know, I like sports, but sometimes they can really overdo the dramatics and like really. You know, like try to get like tearjerker emotions out of you over certain stories. It's it's a bit much. And then it starts to come out that like I can't find anything about this girl and Monty Teo, who's a good guy, but you know, he got catfished. (laughs) He got catfished hard. You ever seen the TV show? He got catfished so, so freaking hard that he like couldn't let the story stop. Like he kind of just had to like make believe that it was it was real. And he kind of lied about it to like his parents and like a few other people because he was so embarrassed at this point, um, and it, that he never actually met this girl. And that, so everyone believed that he had met her once in California. He never really did, but he would talk to her on the phone and everything. And he was just so embarrassed. And uh, the story broke, and it was all all sports news could talk about. It was it. They like mentioned a few other scores and this headline, and then they went right back to Monty Teo. It was like the number one thing for like a week straight, solid, like the top story. And it was 
super interesting, and I, I was totally enthralled by it at the time. This guy got catfished to hell, and it was a guy. He got catfished by a guy. He thought he was in love with this girl. Oh, man. The 1874 Central Park Zoo Escape. In 1874, the Central Park Zoo Escape was a hoax perpetrated in the New York Herald on November 9th, 1874. The Herald's cover story claimed that there had been a mass escape of animals from the Central Park Zoo. Oh, Jesus, sorry, I burped. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. And several people had been killed by the now free-roaming beasts. A rhinoceros was said to be the first to escape, goring his keeper to death and setting into motion the escape of his neighbors. Other animals that the Herald reported being free included a polar bear, a panther, a lion, several hyenas, and a Bengal tiger. At the end of the lengthy article, the following notice was the only indication that the story horrifying readers across the city was a hoax. It said, and I quote, of course, the entire story given above is a pure fabrication. Not one word of it is true. End quote. That was not enough, though, to stop panic in the city. And the extent of the hoax uh, did end up becoming widely known. But people freaked out for a little while. Caribou Harassment. This is not a famous hoax, but this is one that my friend and I tried to trick people into believing many years ago. We started calling everybody caribou. We'd be like, you're acting like a damn caribou. Or we'd be like, oh, don't don't even act like one of those stupid caribou, man. Like, I, I hate having them around. So basically, we tried to invent like a racist or sexist term, whatever it may be. But it was that caribous were pieces of shit. And I didn't want them anywhere around me. And if you want to act like a caribou, listen to caribou music, be a caribou, you can get the fuck out of my life. All right? So we tried to play this off on people, and we would just say caribou at the most inappropriate times, and people would like be like, what is that? Like, they weren't sure if they hadn't heard it before. I guess it never really fully caught on because nobody knows what I'm talking about. But yes, I did try the caribou hoax myself. Manbeef.com Manbeef.com was an elaborate hoax site beginning in January 2001. The company sold human meat and offered tips and recipes on preparing meals. Colorful pictures and illustrations on the website convinced many and appeared uh, legitimate. They sold human flesh for the sophisticated human meat consumer. Visitors to the site could read the recipe of the day as they viewed pictures of attractive cuts of human meat. Pictures of meat being squeezed through a grinder showed exactly what they were selling. Men Beef promised that we have everything from sausages to soup, uh, bones, and stock, all made with the highest quality human meats. Every cut of human meat we sell has been selected for its superb quality and flawless texture. Many individuals fell for the hoax and were disgusted and outraged. News of the site spread primarily by means of email forwarding, often in the form of petitions calling for the stop to the immorality. To avoid being exposed as a hoax, Manbeef claimed that they did not allow customers to purchase the meat products from the website itself. We do this because we prefer to deal with our customers on a more personal basis, the disclaimer stated. 
The only products that were actually available for purchase were souvenir merchandise such as mouse pads, mugs, and t-shirts. At its peak, the site received about 500,000 hits daily. It caused so much controversy that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration launched an investigation and found no wrongdoing because there was no evidence of human meat actually being sold. In 2005, the registration for manbeef.com, the domain name, it expired, and it was quickly taken up by a pornographic-themed cyber squatter. Manbeef.com. You should go to manbeef.com and see what it is. Gorgeous guy. Dan Baca, a 29-year-old network engineer, was going about his life minding his own business when suddenly people began staring at him. He noticed it first when he was standing at a bus stop in the morning. Crowds of people were gathering, looking at him, whispering to each other. It happened a few days in a row. Finally, he confronted them. Why, he demanded to know, was everyone staring at him? The reason, they told him, was that he was an, an internet celebrity. On May 11, 2001, Dan's picture had been posted on a local internet portal, San Francisco's Craigslist.org, in the Missing Connections Forum. The picture's caption read, Gorgeous guy at 4th and Market on the MUNI Amtrak bus stop Monday through Friday. The person had posted this message and talked about how she wanted to meet this guy, but she didn't know his name. She was hoping that he would see her message and contact her. This initial posting initiated a flood of follow-up messages. The gorgeous guy at the bus stop became the talk of San Francisco's online community. People theorized about who he was, whether he was single, straight, gay, etc. Then people began going to the bus stop to actually see him in person. Eventually, a freelance journalist caught wind of the gorgeous guy phenomena and wrote about it in the San Francisco Bay Guardian. National media then picked up on the story, and soon Dan Baca found himself fielding calls from CNN and The Tonight Show. However, the journalist became suspicious. Something about the story didn't ring true to him, so he did some more research and discovered that the majority of the people who had posted the initial follow-up messages that drew attention to Gorgeous Guy's picture shared an IP address. Furthermore, this IP address appeared to trace back to Dan Baca himself. The journalist suggested that Baca had created an array of online personalities to convey the sense that a crowd of people were talking about him. This strategy eventually succeeded in attracting the attention of a real crowd. Baca has maintained his innocence, claiming that the messages had been posted by his co-workers as a prank. Spud Server in March 2000, a website promoted that they were a web server company powered entirely by potatoes, serving up web pages at an appropriately slow, potato-powered speed. The site gained international media exposure, reported on by both the USA Today and the BBC, but the media exposure triggered feelings of guilt in the creators of the Spud server, who then confessed that unfortunately it was all a joke. They explained that, Every time we did another interview, we kept thinking, uh, this will be the last one, but it just kept snowballing. Oh, I did that weird burp thing again. It's so weird. However, they did note that, in theory, building a potato-powered web server was technically feasible. 
but it would require a lot of potatoes. Potatoes, potatoes. And this is our final one. The Runaway Bride. This happened in April 2005. I remember this one as well. Four days before her wedding, Jennifer Wilbanks of Georgia disappeared, sparking a nationwide search for her. She reappeared three days later in Albuquerque, New Mexico, claiming that she had been kidnapped by a Hispanic man and a heavy-set white female who drove her to Albuquerque before releasing her. It's quite a story. Quite a tale. But during questioning by police, Wilbanks eventually admitted that that abduction story was a lie. The truth was that she had fled Georgia taking a Greyhound bus to Albuquerque because of the pressures of the wedding and because the list of things that she needed to get done and had no time to do it, it made her feel overwhelmed. Well, that is our list of hoaxes for the day. That was fun, right? I had a good time doing that. So, guys, uh, if you have any questions, comments, send me an email at philinterrupted at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter. I'll eventually see if you message me on there. And, uh, yeah, you can also check out back catalog of Film Erupted at CircularLogicStudios.com. Other great content and uh, podcasts that I hope you would enjoy at CircularLogicStudios.com again. So, guys, thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this little hoax segment. And uh, if you have any ideas for shows you want in the future, again, hit me up and uh, we'll try to do those for you. That would be fun for me to do some requests. So if you'd like to do that, I will do it indeed. Anyway, that's it, guys. We're making moves here on Film Erupted, and we will catch you next time. Peace The Blue Waffle was a fictitious trans... (sighs) In February 2009 on YouTube, bragging... Shit. Microsoft also...